0: This is Epicenter, episode 534, with guest David Goldberg. Welcome to Epicenter, the show which talks about the technologies, projects, and people driving decentralization and the blockchain revolution. I'm Brian Crane, and today I'm speaking with David Goldberg. He's the co-founder and CEO of Pledge. You're going to learn a lot about Founders Pledge. And, you know, me, I've been uh, sort of part of that organization for quite a while. Actually, Frederique is also part of that. And I think Sébastien joined as well at some point. So uh, a few of our hosts are are involved here. And this is going to be a little bit of a different episode, less crypto, but hopefully still interesting, especially for all of the people listening who are founders and who might want to get involved because it's a great thing to be involved. So thanks so much for coming uh, coming on, David. Well, thanks
1: for having me, Brian. I appreciate
0: it. And yeah, before we get into our chat with David, uh, I would like to tell you a few words about our sponsors this week. This episode is brought to you by Gnosis. Gnosis
2: builds decentralized infrastructure for the Ethereum ecosystem. With a rich history dating back to 2015 and products like Safe, Cowswap, or Gnosis Chain, Gnosis combines needs driven development with deep technical expertise this year marks the launch of gnosis pay the world's first decentralized payment network with Nosis card you can spend self-custody crypto at any visa accepting merchant around the world if you're an individual looking to live more on chain or a business looking to white label the stack visit gnosispay.com there are lots of ways you can join the gnosis journey drop in the gnosis DAO governance form Become a Gnosis Validator with a single GNO token and low-cost hardware, or deploy your product on the EVM-compatible and highly decentralized Gnosis chain. Get started today at gnosis.io.
3: Cars 1 is one of the biggest node operators globally and help you stake your tokens on 45-plus networks like Ethereum, Cosmos, Celestia, and DYDX. More than 100,000 delegators stake with Chorus 1, including institutions like BitGo and Ledger. Staking with Chorus 1 not only gets you the highest yields, but also the most robust security practices and infrastructure that are usually exclusive for institutions. You can stake directly to Chorus 1's public node from your wallet, set up a white label node, or use the recently launched product, Opus, to stake up to 8,000 ETH in a single transaction. You can even offer high-yield staking to your own customers using their API. Your assets always remain in your custody, so you can have complete peace of mind. Start staking today at Chorus.one.
0: So yeah, David, thanks so much for for coming on. I'm excited to speak with you. Maybe just to get started, tell us a little bit, like, what's your story and how did you end up starting Founders Gledge? Yeah, sure. Um, It's actually... Founders Pledge is really about my
1: journey, as it were. Um, So I'll maybe start at the beginning and sort of quickly whiz through some of the sort of pivotal moments that led to where where I am now. Um, I'm from California originally, um, born and raised, working class family. Um, I remember thinking as a young person, um, everything would be better if only my parents had more money. And that was sort of a really driving idea for me as a young person, so I, I dropped out of high school when I was 17, ended up um, trying to find a job and getting one soon after I turned 18 at a a bank. Um, And I, you know, sort of got pretty lucky. Um, And, uh, you know, from 18 to 20, almost 22, worked at a private bank, uh, essentially selling mortgage-backed securities. Um, And I certainly sort of hit my income goals as a young person pretty quickly, but along the way, got really unhappy. Um, as most people do when they work in finance, uh, and uh, and spent you know three and a half years slogging away to make money, only to realize that you know uh, working you know sixty seventy hours a week means that you don't really have much capacity to spend that money on anything at all. Um, I ended up uh, quitting that job uh, as I approached twenty two, moving to Europe for the first time, uh, and uh, ended up in Berlin where I started a business. Um, it wasn't a, a sexy technology business or anything. It was just a, a thing that made money straight away, like a good old fashioned brick and mortar business business. And, um, I ran it for two and a half years and sold it to a, a, a larger company and found myself, you know, 25, uh, sort of with a lot more than I needed. I felt very, very lucky. Like I'd almost won the life lottery a couple of times. Yeah. I was born, um, despite, uh, being born into like a a relatively poor family. Um, I was born a white man in California in the eighties. And, um, and, and it meant that by nature of sort of time place that I was amongst the wealthiest people ever to have existed, even though I didn't realize it or feel it as a young person. And I got really lucky in finance and I got really lucky starting a business. And it just felt like, um, if I didn't do something to rebalance the karma scales that I'd, um, I'd be due a catastrophe or something. And, um, So I figured uh, I'd spend a couple of months giving away some money, being a philanthropist, I feel really good about it, you know, uh, and then I'd move on to the next project. And I think this was a pretty naive perspective to have had, like that it would just be like a snap of your fingers and you give away a bunch of money well and feel good. Um, In in fact, my experience was like, pretty frustrating. Uh, I, I wanted to give away money and I Started to look into nonprofits, and what I found was like this ecosystem of inefficiency and waste, of, uh, sort of ill considered choices and misincentives, donor preferences, trumping sort of charitable objectives, and just like, you know, like a, a fundamentally broken space that, you know, if I were to put money into it, it would just be like lighting it on fire. And so I sort of decided that I, I should probably do something about it or at least figure out how to do something about it. And that's sort of what started the founder's pledge journey, um, from this, Oh man, how broken this is to like, I should, I should do something about it. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I didn't really know what to do or how to do it. So I figured I'd figured out how to think about things better. So I moved back to the U S and finished high school. Um, uh, and then, uh, went to university and did a double and then came to the UK to do a PhD.
0: Okay. So you went to, you went to college really late then, and was sort of that mature one surrounded by the young uh, college students. That's right. Um,
1: it was a little, it was a little awkward at first, to be honest. I mean, I was 25 amongst, you know, teenagers really. Uh, but it did provide me with a bit more purpose and direction and sort of like, yeah, focus, really. Um, I didn't really need to go out and party and do the college thing in the way that lots of young people do. I was there to learn. Like, I had a really specific set of goals, which was like, figure out how the world works and where the sort of levers for power exist and figure out how to move them in the right ways.
0: And then how did you end up starting Foundersledge? Yeah, so
1: I ended up in the UK... Um, working on a PhD, I dropped out of that. Um, didn't really feel like the right use of time, and I joined a um, an organization that had this really interesting mission that really appealed to me. It was called Founders Forum for Good, and it was a, an initiative of the Founders Forum group here in the UK, which was uh, is this um, annual gathering of the good and the great of tech. So it's like a sort of really high density, high quality group of tech founders that come together came together uh, for one day every June in London for a conference and um had been running for 10 years by the time I joined to um, work on this nonprofit initiative and um and my task was to help um social entrepreneurs that existed in the world somewhere be more commercially viable by leveraging the uh, community of the founders forum and bringing these sort of exceptionally talented tech founders um, who had great commercial success into the sort of realm of the social entrepreneur who was using technology to scale their impact. Sort of in in some way created a a bit of a matchmaking and sort of accelerator for for these businesses. And it was a really cool idea that just didn't work. Um, Mostly because the entrepreneurs that we were trying to support with this initiative weren't particularly good entrepreneurs well-intentioned as they were they just didn't really have the stuff that um makes a a good executor um and so founder's pledge was the result of this sort of failure i guess you know i was trying to help these socially minded people be better commercially and the idea was sort of just what if we help great commercial entrepreneurs be more social um and then i was like i should maybe build the thing that i that i wanted when i sold my business like How does one figure out how to allocate capital for maximum social impact when that capital is scarce and data is limited? Um, And so that sort of became the idea for Founders Pledge and um, started as this initiative to get people to commit to give a percentage of what they make if they ever sell their business to to charity and expanded from that basic commitment to a a much bigger ecosystem of, um, of social impact. I can get into the details if that's helpful as well.
0: Yeah, let's get into the details
1: totally. So um, the basic premise is um, everyone who becomes a member of Founders Pledge makes a pledge, as the name suggests. And it's not just for founders, although um, most people assume it is. It's founders, investors, VCs, and um, meaningful shareholders or wealth holders. And everyone makes some form of pledge. Uh, Typically, it's a percentage of their personal proceeds on exit. So if they ever have liquidity in that business, they donate 5%, 10 25% of what they make personally to nonprofits of their choice. So each, each person who pledges can decide the amount that they want to pledge. Um, and it really does range from the low end, which is 5% all the way up to 99% in the high end. And when someone is, has pledged, they become a member. We have about 1,900 members now from 40 countries. And it's our job as a nonprofit, once someone has joined, to really take them on a journey and help them skill up, often from naive but well-intentioned philanthropists when they join, to really empower Changemaker by the time they have liquidity to deploy. And what that means in practice is, in a normal year, we'll host 30 to 40 events all over the world. These are typically small dinners in our members' homes or in restaurants where we'll bring 10 to 20 people together, put them around a table, have a thought leader, or... Expert guided discussion on some topic of relevance, where we really dig into the meat and substance of an issue, like how do we deal with the mental health crisis in America, or how do we deal with the mental health crisis in Sub Saharan Africa, where it's just as extreme, or how do we empower women and girls, or how do we educate the bottom billion when they're often not well enough to even go to school. And so we sort of try to provide context and frame to some of the bigger and more relevant issues of our time. In the process, um, educate our members, help them connect with each other around shared interests, um, and you know, really sort of level up in terms of their knowledge and um, uh, and what the, what can be done to affect these issues in a positive way. And uh, this program lasts for as long as it needs last. You know, we've been around for about ten years now, and so some people joined in year one and still haven't had an exit. Some people joined in year one and had an exit in year two. Um, and so the whole idea of this community and this program is that um, we are here to sort of constantly support knowledge um, and uh, and action for, for social impact. Um, so we do these events. Um, we publish a fair bit of um, research on our website and do sort of programming uh, both on and offline. And then we have... Uh, some infrastructure that we've built to enable impact at real scale. So there's two forms here. The first is the actual financial infrastructure. Um, it's not just enough that people commit to give; it's that they actually have to give. And so sometimes um, it's it's really challenging to donate money across the world, especially if you live in America or uh, or the UK or Germany. Sometimes it's it's uh, uh, the, the government doesn't really like you to move, you know hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars from the UK to Kenya or South Africa or India. Uh, And so we've built essentially a foundation as a service that all of our members are able to use that enables them to donate to a single nonprofit entity, Founders Pledge, get a tax receipt for that donation wherever they're a tax resident. And then Founders Pledge deploys that money on their behalf, does all of their grant making end-to-end to enable impact... To happen wherever it's most necessary so we aren't constrained by the same types of rules and regulations that an individual might be subject to and so our donor advised fund which is this foundation as a service is uh, zero cost it's global first and the, the majority of our members who actually end up uh giving to charity use it and then the final piece here is we have a big research team sort of like a think tank that does all of the sort of heavy lifting to figure out where best to give if you care about uh, women and girls or helping children more broadly or education or poverty or climate change or fighting inequality or racial justice. Um, So our team focuses on identifying the most pressing issue areas, finding the best interventions within them, and then identifying charities, implementing those interventions that are the absolute best in the world at the thing that they do and can productively absorb more capital such that someone can arrive to us, uh, you know, without any real background in charity, just a a knowledge that they want to give back if they have success, learn about how to do that over the course of time, have that exit event, donate to charity, and then deploy that capital to the very best things in the world, all for free using Founders Pledge.
0: Yeah, very cool. Yeah, I mean, uh, personally, uh, someone introduced me to uh, to you guys I guess I was like just around when I started uh, Chorus 1 and then I, I took that pledge I think in 2018 it was you know right at the beginning and, and so it's been, sort of been part of that organization as well and, and taking that pledge and uh, and and participated in some of the amends too which I think were really really great both in terms of you know content people like learning and and yeah I can sort of attest to the support you guys have provided. Also, in, in in terms of giving a little bit, right, I think for the most part, still, right, we haven't sold course one and no plans for that, but, you know, a little bit already been able to sort of leverage uh, you guys' uh, support in that regard.
1: Yeah, and it's it's been our pleasure to, to help you with it. And the funny thing is not everyone who pledges ever, ha- you know, not everyone has an exit. And some people are just going to build really great, revenue-positive dividend businesses that never end up going to sell. And some people are going to close down their businesses without ever having a, a liquidation event or a liquidity event because um, it's just not viable, and others are going to have IPOs. The point is, in pledging, everyone makes a, a similar form of a commitment, and that commitment is you know, uh, one that we expect our members to abide by. It's legally framed, um, even though we don't legally enforce it. And so this act of signing a contract, signing a pledge that says, I'm going to do this as and when I have wealth to do so, I think is the thing that ma- it really matters and creates the sort of common thread of unity between the 1,900 people who are part of Founders Pledge. Um, but it also means that once you are a member, you can use all of the support that we provide for um, for your benefit. So some people um, give as as part of their... Uh, out of their income every year from their salary. And it's certainly not in the millions of dollars, um, but um, that doesn't make it any less relevant or important. And we're happy to provide the same support that we would if there was a liquidity event, uh, as if you're giving to to charity from your salary. So we're a resource the moment someone joins.
0: And then, I mean, we have lots of uh, people listening to this podcast, right, who've been in crypto for a long time and including lots of founders. Uh, Is there... Like, can anyone, you know, who who's a founder uh, or you mentioned Missy uh, as well, can anyone join or is there some sort of um, um, selection y- you guys have or like, how does that work?
3: Yeah,
1: it's a good question. So um, we are a, an invite only community, but practically speaking, if someone reaches out to us and says, hey, I'd like to join Founders Pledge and I'm really early on in my business and I'm 10 years away from having any real money but I'd still like to join, we're going to we're gonna in, ha, have them join, of course. We talk to everyone who we invite to join, though. So uh, you can't just sort of go to our website and sign up. Um, so if you're interested, you're listening, founderspludge.com um, has a ton more information. You can reach out and have a conversation with one of our team. You know, we have a, a pretty strict no assholes policy. <laughs> and, um, and what that means practically is we just want to talk to everyone and make sure there's value alignment. Um, you can imagine that there's, people in the world who would like to be a part of this just for the sort of image boost or signaling benefit that it could create for them. And those people, um, they're pretty easy to spot. Um, they sort of stick out like a like a sore thumb. Uh, so having a conversation is just an easy way to sort of uh, get a sense of why people are joining and, uh, and who they are and what they're working on. So typically, um, we look for people who are growing venture-backed technology companies, although... We work with a number of individuals and families now that, you know, come from multi-generational wealth and, you know, uh, they're investors and um, in fun- both funds and in, in companies, uh, but really their uh, commitment to philanthropy is longer rooted and they want some support there as well. And so we, we, we help people in all sorts of capacities. The, the basic condition is that they have the desire to do good um, and uh, ideally doing good uh, as much good as possible using data. So um, there's like everything, uh, a, s- a spectrum. Uh, and on one hand, you have someone who just wants to give because the act of giving makes them feel nice. And on the other hand, you have someone who wants to give because the act of giving um, affects beneficiaries as as, uh, as much as possible. So like we're more interested in the, we want to have as much impact as possible. So if someone comes to us and says, hey, I w- I'm an early employee at, Crypto Company X, and I've, you know, done well by um, putting my money into the right uh, protocols early on, um, and I want to give a bunch of money away, we're we're really happy to work with people like that as well.
0: And then, uh, I guess a lot of the, uh, you know, founders joining, you know, they have some business, they pledge equity, but then, of course, in crypto often, uh, you know, it's people uh, create some protocol and tokens, and then... That that's fits just as well in that framework where you basically pledge, sure. yeah, you can pledge uh, coins, tokens, um, any
1: any number of types of instruments, uh, whatever they are. Um, the, the the thing for us, and you know, ultimately, we're like a bit of consequentialists. Like we just care that the thing actually happens. Like if there's people who want to use their resources to give back and affect the world positively, then we're happy to help them do that.
0: For you, like building Founder's Pledge, what have been your biggest uh, your biggest learnings and the things that surprised you the most? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess one of the things that I decided
1: really early on about Founder's Pledge is that it needed to be set up with the right incentives. So there's lots of um, good intentions out in the world, and um, and I think uh, a lot of um, sort of poorly designed businesses and nonprofits. Uh, poorly designed in the sense that they um, don't take into account how you're incentivizing good behavior or bad behavior. So one of the things that was important to me was that Founders Pledge um, never have to sell to survive or compromise its integrity for funding. So um, everything we do for our members, we do for free. And this was a, a choice that we made. And what it means practically is that Someone can show up at Founders Pledge, make a pledge, come to 20 dinners over the course of five years, have an exit, donate money into our donor advised fund, um, work with our advisors and use our research and then deploy all of their capital and never spend a single penny on Founders Pledge. Like it's free, free. And this is important because it enables us to focus on the main thing, which is impact. Uh, You can imagine a world in which, you know, we charge for each piece of what we do where it creates barriers for entry, on one hand for the people to join, and on another hand for us to actually try to sort of scrape cash off the top so that we can fund ourselves um, by focusing on just impact and only impact and enabling our members to um, work with us in a way that there's never any question about what we care about. it, it means that our uh, sort of integrity is above reproach um, and uh, and and the main thing is, is impact. Um, the flip side of that coin is I have to go out every year and fundraise to keep the lights on and my team paid. And, um, you know, as a team of 65, it's not inexpensive. And so Founders Pledge is funded through donations as a nonprofit ourselves that um, come to us through Existing philanthropists, foundations, nonprofits, a couple of corporates give us money because they like who we are and what we do. Um, and only if someone has derived value from working with Sounders Pledge, having used our support and our services, um, they can choose to su- support us if they want. So um, by providing this for free and focusing on impact above all else, our members who have gotten this free service still choose to support us as a nonprofit of their own accord. And so this, this means that only when we provide value do people end up uh, funding us. So it, it does keep this nice alignment in uh, in both donor interests, impact, and our, our own focus. So um, I guess the learning is, like, do the right thing, even if it's the hard one. Um, and it certainly has been hard, right? Like, um, I have a little bit of an existential crisis every year about sort of September, October, when I look at our fundraising numbers for the year and I see, you know, we are off by some number of millions of dollars and there's like three months left in the year. And if we don't raise enough money, um, then I have to reduce the headcount next year or reduce cost in some other way. Um, So it it makes it really challenging, but it also makes it, um, yeah, impact first. I guess that's one of my, my sort of big learnings. The other is focusing on people like, so founders pledges it's, is, is it, is team or we are our employees and, um, it's really hard managing a team of 65 people. Well, um, I figured that because we were an impact company you know, nonprofit, that it would be somehow easier to maintain company culture. But it turns out it's, it's, it's actually not. <laughs> it's maybe even more challenging because not only do you have a social purpose, like people join because of the mission, but also you have the same sort of human condition issues that, you know, every business faces. And so you have people who really care and have joined Founders Pledge in, uh, instead of Google or wherever else, uh, any number of like interesting places that would have paid them more money because of the social purpose and the, the impact that we create. And that just sort of heightens the stakes. And it, it, it means that like focus on culture for us has become increasingly, increasingly important. Um, and ensuring that we are being the best we can as, um, as a company and as um, leaders of that company is...
0: What have you learned about building a great company culture? culture? That your values are everything you
1: live or die by your values. And, um, uh, and that like a great head of people is like a crucial part of maintaining company culture and embedding that in all that we do. Uh, one of the, one of the great things that I learned from a coach a couple of years ago was like, if you aren't hiring, firing, promoting, and rewarding based on your values, then you don't really have values like that. Our values should enable us to make decisions Uh, that we otherwise wouldn't be able to make absent a set of values. Like ours are maximize impact, uh, take action, energize others, and follow the data. And we do that in all that we do. So whenever there's a question about what's the right course of action, we look to our values to say, what what should we be doing? What does the data say? Is this going to maximize impact or minimize impact? Like, is doing this going to be good in the short term, but actually really um, kill the momentum of this team or this project? Um, and, uh, yeah. And so, you know, I think company culture is the product of good leaders, uh, like strong values that you live and breathe, um, and like a clear purpose.
0: Are there some mistakes that you made, uh, in this, in sort of with regards to building company culture that, you know, you feel like really shaped you and like, ended up being something like, okay, I have to do, we have to do this different later or some things that, you know, you only realize later. I mean,
1: hiring well is really important and also really hard. So like, um, we've made a ton of mistakes with hiring, like assuming that, um, you know, what seems to be surface level value alignment, but isn't really tested well, coupled with just, you know, um, smarts, cleverness, brute IQ, Will lead to good results. So, uh, to be more specific, we had a much less rigorous hiring process in the early days of Founders Pledge. It was like, oh, cool, you have a pulse. You say you like what we do. You're happy to work hard. Um, Great, you've got a job. Like, we need people. Compared to now, where I think we have seven or eight different interviews, which seems like a bit over the top. But when you think about what's required to um, hire an employee, Like we, we like spend a huge amount of time when someone has been offered a job, skilling them up, getting them fed into our systems. It takes sort of two months before they're really net positive on the system. So if you hire poorly, then you're basically wasting two months of valuable time, not just of that employee, but of the people that train that employee. So um, we'd have a much more um, sort of intentional and substantive hiring process with lots of different interviews, values, interviews, and um now at the end of every stage once someone has sort of passed every other hurdle they have an interview with two people of our team and it's selected at random who do sort of culture fit interviews so they can actually understand what it's like to work with us because if we hire someone poorly and uh then we it takes us months to undo the damage and real cost um so that's one piece of it
0: so just uh asking i'm I'm curious about this i think mean, that's an interesting topic like how how do you go from you know sort of you know hearing someone say okay you know i share those values to like understanding if they actually do and and sort of digging deeper there like what are the what are the methods that you use for that Yeah, I mean, we have
1: uh, a set of questions that we ask about sort of like, how would you make a decision about X? Like, talk to us about how you'd think about this process. Like, what are the steps that you'd go through in order to go from A to Z? Um, And we, you know, it's sort of like how I've, I've heard consulting firms like interview, like big five consulting firms interview, like, how many, you know, tubes of toothpaste are sold in the UK each year? Like, obviously... You know, your average person, even your average clever person isn't going to be able to come up with the correct answer or even with wide error bars. But how they think about it is the more important bit. Like what's the process that you go through to determine how many tubes of toothpaste are sold in the UK? So we do a similar sort of thing, but like um, you have a member, you know, create a fictional scenario. Um, how would you, How would you address their concern or their issue? How would you deal with a time-sensitive request on a Friday night that was needed to go out by Monday morning. And so we asked people to walk through it and there aren't right or wrong answers. There's just how people think about it and, and how what the, the path they suggest says about their value set and their alignment with ours. And it doesn't necessarily need to be the case that like people arrive with, you know, fully formed values that are our values. It's just, they need to demonst- also demonstrate a willingness to absorb them and sort of operate with them. I think, part, I think part of it is having a great uh, sort of head of people or HR team that design this process for each company. Like what our process is is going to be different than what another company's process is that has a different culture. Not better or worse, just different.
0: Let's talk a little bit about like impact. So maybe first of all, what do you think in, in your personal view, like what are the biggest areas where you know, you feel impact can be had or, you know, the most urgent things that you feel need to be addressed?
1: There's a lot, right? Um, So it's first worth saying that the world has been getting increasingly better year on year since the 80s. Like, there's less poverty, there's less suffering, there's less death, there's less disease. Overall, we're getting better. Um, Even though day to day it can often feel like things have never been worse, there's war, there's conflicts, there's um, famine, there's pandemics, there's just like a, a spate of bad news that sort of pours at us um, nonstop. So it's first we're saying that things are getting better. They have been getting better. And this has been the result of like really dedicated and directed hard work at uh, addressing some of our biggest problems like extreme poverty um, and uh, And malnutrition and economic impoverishment. Um, But the areas that I'm uh, most interested in today are sort of a combination of uh, sort of what you might expect and some uh, interesting new stuff. So um, despite our gains in global health and well-being, there is still like a lot of work left to do around um, poverty, especially in low and middle income countries. So I think this is an area that continues to be um, like exceptionally valuable and high impact. Um, uh, and I'm speaking about, you know, the bottom billion living on less than um, $3 a day. Um, I'm speaking about, uh, uh, you know, empowering women and girls. I'm speaking about education, um, in low income contexts, uh, about malnutrition, about displaced peoples. I think these are all big areas where thoughtful philanthropists can have outsized impact alongside more topical uh, things like the climate crisis which um, you know in the, in the last couple of years has seen the amount of money flowing into climate philanthropy just skyrocket so it's a, a very well-funded space now and despite that there is still a huge amount of work left to do and really interesting areas for more where more funding is needed that are just being Ignored by many of the larger funders out there, and this is typically around um, preventing carbon lock in low-income economies, and um, uh, and sort of changing the innovation environment in high-income countries to enable um, technologies to progress at uh, at a much faster pace, such that we can um, transition out of uh, dirty power into sort of cleaner power, and and in the process. Deal with a, a huge amount of necessary carbon sequestration and then uh the other big issue I'd say is um while things have been getting better generally uh and for the majority of people out there we we are still um uh sort of playing roulette with a with a bunch of other big issues like global catastrophic risks so um I think it's not an exaggeration to say that this pandemic that we had in 2020 which seems to be mostly behind us was predictable and predicted and expected and we will have more of this this is not the last pandemic that we will experience that our generation will experience for sure and we were caught unawares last time uh, mostly um, and the result was lots of people died Um, and uh, we should expect pandemics to continue um uh and maybe won't be as lucky as the last time because we had this sort of naturally occurring zootropic pandemic that um yeah, didn't kill anywhere near the number of people that um it could have like smallpox killed uh, a vastly large number of people vastly larger number of people um so there's these global catastrophic risks like um uh, pandemics and other biosecurity threats as well as um, you know, potential for nuclear war and autonomous weapon systems and military AI. There's a whole bunch of scary things happening that uh, philanthropists can be focusing their energy on to make better.
0: I mean, one thing that comes to mind here that just seems to be sort of an inherent challenge with uh, you know nonprofits and philanthropy is you know if, if you start like a Uh, for-profit company then there's the sort of obvious way that you can uh you know measure success right which is okay uh, you know do you generate profits right like how much revenues do you have what do you cost like how is that developing and you know you have this real like feedback system where you know if you do a crappy job like well you're probably going to go out of business and it's going to be over and uh you know and, and and so you have that kind of regulatory mechanism that the market provides but of course with with uh with non-profits but you're getting money from some donors and then you know you do something and whether that something works or not I, i imagine is a lot harder to assess
1: absolutely it's one of the big conundrums and one of the reasons that the non-profit ecosystem is so inefficient is because there is no feedback loop because the donor isn't the person who receives the good or the service, and the person who does, the beneficiary has no mechanism to feed back to that donor that the thing was good or bad or that they are better off as a result of it. Um, which is why much of the work that we do is really important because it provides the transparency, the feedback loop, the the check on input to say that the outcome was worth the actual cost. Um, so like, most of the work that our, our research team does is around understanding the interaction between inputs and outcomes, and building cost-effectiveness models to assess whether an input into charity X or charity Y or charity Z is the most effective on a dollar per dollar basis. And and like are the out is the outcome in terms of a sort of a unified metric around quality of life or reduction of disability burden or um, income doubling better at one of these three charities? And if so, which one and by how much? And then also sort of helping um, donors and so we can analogize them to investors to understand, like, where am I gonna get the most return to what point? So there's another interesting sort of uh, quirk to the nonprofit sector, which is um, there's a a room for funding that most charities have, or most nonprofits have, which is to say that like, In a given year, they can use X amount of dollars to do their work, after which more dollars actually don't uh, change anything. It goes into sort of uh, their reserve budget, and they can't spend it because they don't have the capacity to. So assessing how much a charity can productively use in a specific period of time is also like a crucial point. Because, you know, ostensibly, we, we don't want to overfund a nonprofit to have our money that has value in in the time that we're giving it to just go and sit in someone's bank account and not actually be used, not be implemented. So understanding your additionality is is really crucial. So like funding charities at the right amount. So when we do an analysis, we understand the cost effectiveness of dollars, pounds, euros, or hundreds of thousands or millions. And then we provide sort of funding recommendations to uh, the world and our members to say like, we think this charity can productively absorb four million more dollars this year. After which, the uh, their funding uh, their their efficiency just falls off a cliff because they are going to have to, you know, hire up a new team, scale into a new region, um, and uh, we we have much less clarity about whether they can do that well. And so we often are making recommendations that say, put four million dollars here, two million dollars there, half a million there. Because that's the actual amounts that nonprofits can productively use, and, and, and in a sense, we have this feedback loop through the Founders Pledge um, modeling and analysis that we do to say that it's the best use of that next dollar. And yeah, you know, that's where um, you know some of the secret sauce comes in, I guess.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I guess there's sort of another, maybe slightly uh, perverse incentive, right? Where the nonprofit itself maybe doesn't have really the incentive I mean of course they have the incentive to uh, sort of showcase what they're doing as highly effective and they're pro- you know probably not incentivized to be like oh actually does you know to, to to do that kind of data analysis and that kind of reflection on the effectiveness of what they're doing in in like an unbiased way do you think it's necessary to have, or, like, to what extent do you see uh, non-profits themselves do that kind of analysis effectively? Or do you think it's crucial to have a sort of, some, you know, not like neutral third party like you guys do this?
1: I think it's really important to have uh, a, a, someone to come in and do the analysis. I mean, you can rely on a non own internal analysis to a point, but it's like having a student check their own homework, right, like... Um, they're, all, they're almost always going to give themselves thought marks, right? If left to their own devices. Um, uh, one of the things that we look for is um, like real data transparency and transparency and operations. So if a charity never talks about the mistakes that they've made, then they're hiding something from you, right? Like universally, this is the case. Like Founders Budge makes mistakes and we write about them on a blog. Um, and, um, you know, our mistakes are as important as our successes. And I think that it's, it's, it's probably pretty important to have someone aside from the implementing organization itself or the donors, you know, family office do some analysis. It's the reason why most wealthy, successful people work with, um, like external wealth advisors for, well, there's a couple of reasons why they do. The first is obviously like there's the opportunity cost of doing it yourself, the lack of brain share, just you know, the number of things that any successful um, wealthy person has to do is uh, often more than they have the capacity to do um and then there's like the expertise that comes with that um, specialization. and like, you know, um, I certainly couldn't tell you the first thing about where to invest your money <laughs> uh, in public markets, but I could talk for days about how to deploy philanthropic capital to affect poverty and sub-Saharan Africa and that specialization um, coupled with the sort of uh, remove from the self like uh, bringing someone in to help you think about it I think is like a really crucial part of success and I, I don't know many philanthropists who do it all themselves
0: one thing I'm curious about so I, I mean I guess the you know there's this um, maybe sort of philosophy or brand of, you know, effective altruism, which, you know, I guess it sort of falls under. And and that, at least with, uh, you know, of course, uh, the most famous effective altruist, uh, or, you know, at least on the surface looked like it, you know, Sam Bankman-Fried has sort of maybe gotten a bit of bad reputation. I'm curious, has that affected you? Do you feel like there are some lessons to draw from from that?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's a good question. Um, I think there's a lot of good thinking that has happened within the, the effective altruist community. And, um, and I think that, uh, there all have also been a lot of bad apples in the EA community that have, um, almost certainly for worse, um, tarnished the, the what is, you know, good thinking, um, through their bad behavior. So I'd I'd say that we are sort of influenced by EA in some way. Um, We've uh, sort of learned a lot from how effective altruists think about the world, Um, but have developed our own sort of thesis, our own viewpoint. That is, I would say, maybe a bit more humanistic than your, you know, strongly utilitarian EA uh, person. And... We care about data. We care about measurement. We try to take sort of rational approaches to things. We try to maximize impact where we can and where different methodologies can help us. We learn from those methodologies and incorporate that into our own. Um, but to to paint everyone who's a part of EA with the same brush that SBF has used, I think would is like intellectually sloppy and ridiculous.
0: So you said... Uh, you're a bit more humanistic in your approach. What does that mean? So it means
1: that we take, um, like, we are not working in an artificial construct in the sense that, like, these are the only things that you should focus on because this is the truth and it's objective truth and anyone else who thinks differently is wrong. Like, that's a sort of an approach that discounts the human experience. So our, our perspective is that, like, people have lived experiences and those lived experiences shape who we are and what we care about. And rather than saying, you must ignore them to focus on impact. Like we lean into how does one's personal story um, constrain them or expand their capacity to do good or bad. Like as an example, um, my father died of cancer five years ago. My aunt died of cancer a couple of years after that. Cancer has affected me in a really profound way. And to pretend that it hasn't, would be sort of doing a disservice to my family and my own perspective about the world. But rather than saying, I focus my energy on cancer because I've experienced it in my personal life, um, I focus on how can we use data to best affect things related to cancer, maybe not as a first-order impact, but as a second-order impact. So one of the things that I've funded myself is um, uh, micro and macronutrient fortification, which tends to result in a, in a couple of countries across sub-Saharan Africa, a much higher incidence in stomach cancer. So by following data and trying to understand like where we can affect cancer, I've sort of uncovered that micro and macronutrient fortification, which leads to the healthy development of, sort of the gut, um, is uh, a thing that needs support in sub-Saharan Africa. And Uh, Because this is so prevalent, stomach cancer is higher in the areas where these uh, uh, micro and macronutrients are are less available. So I fund that now. And the first order impact is people live healthier, happier lives. And the second order impact is that they have less incidence of stomach cancer. Now, it's not lung cancer that killed my father or multiple myeloma that killed my aunt, but it's still focusing on the things that have shaped my journey and guide me into giving in areas that might be unexpected.
0: Do you find it sometimes challenging that, you know, people come in and yeah, they have sort of their personal preferences with regards to, you know, yeah, some, I don't know, I really like dogs and uh, my favorite thing is the dog. And so I want to like put my money there, even though like maybe it's sort of questionable. Well, I guess it depends what you care about. Right. But
1: so we ask the question, like, well, why do you like dogs? So like, we try to get to the so what of what people say, what they care about. And do I find it challenging? Sometimes, of course. But it's part of what we do is help people to find their sort of intrinsic and core values. Well, uncover them. Like, they're there somewhere. But often people care about animals, but without a real sense of necessarily why. It's like, what is it about animals that you care about? Um, and maybe, uh, and maybe it's that they just like love the companionship of dogs and don't like to see dogs suffer. Um, and so, you know, we can then sort of try to understand animal suffering and what what does that actually mean? So if you don't want to see dogs suffer, but what do you care about pigs as well? Do you care about cows? Do you care about chickens? And so like, we can sort of go from this narrow space of, I care about dogs specifically and dogs in my neighborhood to like. How do animals experience suffering, and can we do anything to affect that? Um, And so we try to, on one hand, understand where someone starts and what they care about, and on the other, sort of expand their moral circle from the thing that they've said very specifically to what else could be included in that.
0: In the time you've been interested in philanthropy, what are the biggest things that have changed?
1: That's a good question. I think
0: there's been
1: um, a real proliferation of organizations focused on data. I mean, um, when I had my exit back in 2008, um, there was just like nothing. Yeah, you know, there was not there was no real data that I could find. The internet was still. <laughs> in its infancy, in, in a sense, right? Um, or at least there's there certainly much less available information about, this, about philanthropy, about impact, about RCTs, and sort of the types of studies that um, often our work relies upon. But there's been like a real proliferation of organizations doing analysis of sort of philanthropic groups. Um, Donor-advised funds have become a far more uh, common structure Uh, alongside lots of other types of um, of group-related giving, like giving circles and affinity groups and and evaluators like us and GiveWell and and others.
0: You guys recently launched a venture capital fund as well. Can you talk a little bit about that and the role of of that? Sure. Uh, So Founders Pledge um, launched
1: and then spun out a venture fund. So we're technically n- no longer connected um, but the basic premise was um, you know because founders pledge is a nonprofit and we don't charge for what we do um, I spend most of my time fundraising to keep the lights on every year um, and in 2021 as I was crossing the street in London I nearly got hit by a bus I was I looked the wrong direction as I sometimes do when I when I'm in here and uh, and I had this very near miss and I uh, sort of Step back from the curb, um, thinking like, what what would have happened if that had been it? Like, if I'd been hit by this bus, and I'm I'm not here anymore. Like, would Founders Pledge have survived? Would it Would it have thrived? And I sort of came to the pretty clear conclusion that there would be you know a real problem, not because Founders Pledge isn't well run. I mean, it, I don't run it. Like, I have a great COO who does most of the work, very thankfully. Um but because i- keep, I keep the, the the nonprofit funded, and so I started to think to myself like, how could founders pledge fund itself if not with donations like what are the other mechanisms for you know income that we could create without changing the incentives and without sort of um you know compromising on impact and I sort of came to this idea that instead of relying on our members to eventually give to us having received value. What if we could participate in their success alongside them on the, on the cap table as investors? And it was just like a a sort of small jump from that to we should start up a venture fund and invest in founders pledge members, companies at really consequential moments in time and see the success of those investments benefit primarily founders pledge. And so we've built a venture fund called pledge ventures it's pretty unique in the world, as, as far as I can tell. That's a commercial venture fund for its investors, the, the people who put money into it as LPs. But the GP, the, the entity that actually makes the investment decisions and is entitled to 20% of the returns, the GP donates back the vast majority of its return, 85% of that 20%, back to Founders Pledge, such that the primary beneficiary of the success of this venture fund would be Founders Pledge, the nonprofit, um, and so that was the basic idea. I'm not an investor, unlike most founders. I've never really wanted to be an investor. It doesn't really excite me. But I found I found myself as one, um, as it were, and uh, and rather than trying to like pick the best companies, you know, with my finger in the air, like sometimes uh, I've led to believe that VCs do. Uh, we are uh, making uh, we're making investments based on a set of rules that we've built that the data suggests um, are the right rules to focus on. And so, Pledge Ventures um, invests um, in every company that passes our three criteria, and those criteria are one one of the founders of of the company is a member of Founders Pledge and that they've pledged. The second is that the company is raising twenty million dollars or more in a Series B or later, and the third is that One of their investors um, uh, is a top tier investor. So they are uh, one of the VCs that's participating is in the top quartile of investment performance um, in VC. And so these three criteria mean that we invest um, really only in the very, very best companies in growth stage rounds alongside the most storied investors of all time. And we can do this because we've built 10 years of goodwill amongst our members. We've never asked for anything in return. And we say, hey, you're raising a $40 million Series C and Sequoia is leading the round. We'd love for you to make a small allocation of that uh, investment available for us. By and large, people say yes. And so we have this venture fund. We've raised about $45 million for it now. We've made seven investments. um, and, uh, and, And if we're successful over the course of the next couple of years, then Founders Pledge will be sustainable from the returns of this venture fund. It's not certainly not sustainable yet. <laughs> it's going to take years until we know if this will work
0: or not. Um, but it's
1: looking good so far.
0: Cool. Yeah. And then I guess in the future, if it works, you you can create more funds with the same structure. Right. And yeah. Yeah. So I mean, we're we're um,
1: yeah, we're we're going to close fundraising on our first fund in April. Um, if if Fund One is successful, we'll certainly raise Fund Two probably similar sort of thesis, but who knows. Um, it's exciting um, and, uh, and different and, uh, you, know, you know, ultimately no one really gets rich from this, um, but the Founders Pledge benefits.
0: For you, what are the biggest challenges that you feel like Founders Pledge needs to tackle sort of in the next decade of its life?
1: I think part of it is funding, right? Like, since Pledge Ventures, it needs to be able to um, survive and thrive absent the constraints of my ability to fundraise. So I think funding is one of the big challenges. The second is um, figuring out how to scale what is a very human-centric business to a larger number of people. Um, So, like, what we do is very... Person to person, it's high touch, and as we continue to grow and we add about 120 members per year, we can't just throw more people at it. So there we need to figure out how to build some efficiencies with technology. I think staying ahead of the curve in terms of where funding is necessary is going to be really crucial. We've built a pretty amazing, we've built a pretty amazing climate team that do um, really great work around climate philanthropy. Um, and, and staying um, great is, is hard, right? Um, ensuring that the quality of our thought remains high is, I think, crucial. I think it's basically it. Like, it's just about continuing to execute. Like, our model works. We just need to continue to deliver it.
0: Probably should have asked this earlier, but can you talk a little bit about sort of the numbers in terms of, you know, the impact that Pledge has had so far? Yeah, so we
1: have 1,900 signatories from 40 countries. They've pledged 10 and a half billion dollars or so to charity philanthropy, and uh, our members have donated now a bit more than a billion. Of that, um, about a bit more than half has actually gone to end-user charities, uh, and the rest is in various foundations and um, sort of nonprofits, endowments awaiting end-user deployment.
0: Cool. So if if one were to apply your method to look at, you know, Founders Pledge as a charity itself and like the effectiveness of Founders Pledge, like how would you sort of assess or rate that?
1: Yeah, we're really effective, it turns out. We actually did this assessment um, internally and then the person who did the assessment left Founders Pledge and joined another nonprofit, and has just redone it. And um, yeah, we're quite effective uh, as it turns out. So Um, I believe last year, um, for every dollar of OPEX we spent, we moved, it was nine or $10 counterfactually to a high impact funding opportunity. And what that means is that this wouldn't have happened otherwise. And it is as a direct result of our work. So, um, like a nine X multiplier on in your spend to high impact funding opportunities is very, very good. Um the year before I think it was seven um and our multiplier against all money moved uh, in year i think is 20, 20, 20 some odd times our our spend per year um so it puts us pretty nicely in high impact range
0: cool well, anything else you wanna you wanna share with uh, people listening uh
1: basically like i think it's i think it's really easy to like punt giving back to the future when you have more or when there's more security or things feel less hec- hectic or crazy. But um, I think now is the best time to do it, anything, right? So um, uh, later is always easier. Now is always harder. But The world certainly does need our support. So we should probably be giving it, even if it's not very large sums. And I assume that the people who listen to your podcast are people who've done well in crypto and beyond. And um, the people who do well should give back.
0: Cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, for coming on, David. Uh, it was, I think, really great to, you know, talk a bit about Final Spledge and learn more about it. Uh, and, and yeah, I hope some of the people who have listened feel, uh, feel inspired and feel like maybe this is something for them. And if so, yeah, go, go to finalspledge.com and uh, check it out and maybe get in touch with, with David and, uh, and the organization. And, uh, yeah, you can get involved. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Cool. And thanks so much for our listeners. I appreciate you tuning in, and we look forward to being back next week.
2: Thank you for joining us on this week's episode. We release new episodes every week. You can find and subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a Google Home or Alexa device, you can tell it to listen to the latest episode of the Epicenter podcast.